Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. This is the 13th and final episode of the season. I'll release a couple of episodes this summer, so stay tuned. And then a second season this fall. And I appreciate, as always, you subscribing and tuning in. So let's move things right along. I'm excited to have as my guest today Philip Jett, the author of the wonderful book called The Death of an Heir, Adolf Coors III, and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. It's a, a fascinating story, and I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Yeah, no, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for getting my book and and thinking enough of it to uh, email me. Oh, no problem at all. So my first question for you is I'd, I'd love to hear where you first heard about this story. Well, it's funny. Um, it's very strange. I didn't uh, – I was looking for a book to write, and uh, I was keeping my eye open – and I didn't really research uh, this to, to learn to write it. I was out in Colorado. I go out to Colorado a couple times a year. I like to fly fish, and I like to ski. <clears throat> so I'm out there a couple times a year. And I one year, I uh, this was probably around 2010, I took the uh, tour at the Coors Brewing Company. And uh, I don't know if you've ever done that. It's pretty cool. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, they also give you free beer at the end, so it's worthwhile. But uh, when you leave the tour, there's this hallway, and they have these photographs of <clears throat> Coors present and past. And I noticed that um, this Coors, I had Coors III, dropped off the wall at some point, and his brothers continued. And I was like, wow, what happened here? You know, did he become a black sheep? What's going on? And I was staying at the um, Golden Hotel at the time, uh, and I, so I Googled the story, 
I Googled him and I found the story. And I was like, wow, this is a great story. And then the next thing I did was go on to Amazon to see if anyone had written about it. And I saw no book anywhere. And then I Googled further. And so uh, once I saw that it had not been uh, treated uh, in books or otherwise, uh, I, you know, I chose it as my story. Oh, that's excellent. I guess before we actually get into the story, I'm hoping we can talk about the Coors family in general. Maybe just a brief history of the family in Colorado, and then more specifically, tell us who Adolf Coors III was. Yeah, sure. Well, the um, Adolf Coors was uh, a German immigrant, <clears throat> came to the U.S. in the um, late 1800s, uh, went to Chicago and worked for a while and decided that he wanted to follow in the steps of many German brewers and start a beer company. Uh, and he knew that the most important thing in beer is water. So he had heard that Colorado had great water. So he goes out to Colorado and um, this is around 1873, as I recall correctly. And he starts a brewing company and you know, worked hard, and, and it's one of the success stories that we have in America. He created this, you know, gigantic brewing company <clears throat> that his son, Adolf Coors Jr., took over uh, in the, you know, early 1900s. And then the company survived Prohibition, which was difficult on most beer companies. And then Adolf Coors III, who was the victim in this book, he was the grandson of the founder, uh, the namesake, and he was, at that time, he was 44 years old. He was the CEO, chairman of the board of the brewing company. He had a wife and four kids at home. Um, so, you know, he was carrying on the company, and uh, he had two brothers. They were all involved in the brewing company, and, um, you know, it's uh, a family. Uh, it wasn't a public company. It was a family-held company, uh, as it was for many years. And, uh, you know, the, it's like I say, it's one of the great uh, success stories, particularly in a very competitive market. And, uh, you know, now I think it has uh, joined with Molson. So Molson Coors, I believe, is the third largest brewing company in the world. I could be mistaken on that, but it's certainly in the top five. So the events you're about to elaborate on happened in 1960, but up until the point he's kidnapped, he's living a, a pretty idyllic life, right? Yes, he, you know, he, it's interesting because he was not your typical corporate kind of guy. He preferred to be hunting, fishing, uh, you know, being out on the farm, the ranch out there. So um, he, in fact, in 1958, he bought a ranch. He was living in Denver, and he moved, bought a ranch south of Denver in Morrison, about 500 acres, 400-something-odd acres, and uh, started raising cattle and quarter horses. And that was his um, passion. He wasn't sitting behind a desk at Coors Brewing Company as the CEO. And, in fact, he you know, planned on an early retirement and just hanging out the ranch and enjoying Colorado. So let's go to February 9th, 1960. 
It's a milkman, right, that discovers a, a suspicious station wagon. Yeah, a 25-year-old milkman. Uh, in fact, um, he was crossing the bridge. No one had it had snowed that morning, so there were no tracks on the bridge except for the school bus. And the school bus had passed at about 7.40, I think. And the milkman came by a little after 10 o'clock in the morning. So that shows you how little traffic there was. Um, and the milkman could not cross the single lane bridge because there was a um, turquoise international harvester, um, what we call an SUV now, parked in the middle of the bridge. So he sat and blew, blew his horn and waited and waited and after no one showed for about 10, 15 minutes, he just simply moved the vehicle out of the way because the key was still in the car and the engine was running. So he just moved the car out of the way and then went ahead and made his delivery and came back and the car was still there. So he drove down the road and that's when he called um, the local sheriff and said, hey, you know, there's this car blocking the road of, you know, and still there, uh, you might want to check it out. And that's how it all began. And, uh, you know, um, they found out later that cores had disappeared around 8 o'clock. So this is almost 1030 before anyone noticed that he was gone. What is the evidence that they initially find at the scene? <clears throat> well, there's not a lot of evidence, The but, you know, the state trooper came um, and checked the car out, and it's, it seemed fine. Um, but he did find um, some blood, uh, but he didn't think it was a lot of blood. He didn't, for whatever reason, he didn't see a lot of blood. <clears throat> but he also found a hat and a cap in the creek. Um, so he retrieved those, and that's really all he had. Uh, so he looked at the registration in the the vehicle, and he called the Coors Brewing Company. They passed him over to Bill Coors, who's Ed Coors III's brother. And they had noticed, you know, he usually came in about 8.30 every morning. He wasn't there. They hadn't heard from him. So they actually left. He and his brother Joe, Bill and Joe, drove out to this bridge to meet the state patrolman um, to check things out. And that's when they discovered more blood on the road and on the railing and some specks on the vehicle and even down in the creek bed. So they knew something had happened. They just didn't know if it had happened to their brother or to someone else. You know, one of the first uh, theories was maybe there'd been like a road rage incident and somebody, you know, it had gotten out of hand. There'd been a fight and somebody was in the hospital and, um, you know, then it went from there. So correct me if I'm wrong, but pretty quickly, there are multiple law enforcement agencies working this case. The Coors family is a pretty important family, and this is not a typical missing persons in investigation. There's wealth and power involved, so this is especially serious to investigators. What, what agencies are involved, and what is their relationship as they investigate? Yeah, sure. It's um, it's funny because initially uh, that morning, up until about noon, it was only the Coors brothers, Bill and Joe, and the state patrolman. 
And then a little after noon, they called the sheriff's department and say, you know, we've, we've got a problem out here. So the sheriff, um, Art Wormuth, who was a war hero from World War II, he sent some men out and then more men and recognizing there was a problem. So initially he got a lot of, um, sheriff deputies cordoning off the area, running ropes and tape and searching the creek bed. And they're, they're more, uh, searching for a person, a lost person, a hurt person, uh, you know, that's out in the area. So it's really more of a search, uh, at, in the beginning. And then, um, the local FBI, they have a field office in Denver. Uh, they got wind, and so they sent some agents out, even though technically they're not supposed to be involved until 24 hours have passed. Um, and But they, you know, because it was a Coors, one of the wealthiest and well-known families in Colorado, uh, the FBI quickly got involved. And they, for the first day, they took a back seat to the locals, but they went ahead and were gathering evidence, looking at evidence and getting ready for eight o'clock the next morning for them to more or less take over the investigation because um, even though there were about 75 sheriff deputies and, you know, a handful of detectives, that was not their forte. And it certainly was the FBI's so quickly that within the first two days, the FBI took over the investigation and assigned a lot of men to it uh, because uh, Adolph Coors Jr., the father of the Adolph Coors III, called J. Edgar Hoover personally and said, hey, you guys have got to find my son. So, you know, most of us can't do that. Uh, and J. Edgar Hoover, um, you know, number one, it was a an important family. And number two, J. Edgar Hoover always wanted good publicity for the FBI. And so he jumped on it and, you know, um, made it his, one of his personal, it was the biggest case domestically for Jagger Hoover. And at that time, uh, this is before Petty Hearst and, you know, some others. At that time, it was this, became the second largest kidnapping case in, in U.S. history behind the kidnapping of Lindbergh's baby. So, uh, not a lot of people were aware of that, but it was a huge case. Lots and lots of FBI agents assigned you know, it encompassed the continental U.S. and into Canada. Uh, so it was a big case. So pretty quickly, his, his wife, Mary, receives a ransom note, right? Can you talk about the contents of this note? Yeah, the, the, you know, the kidnapping was on a Tuesday. And after the meeting at the bridge, the kidnapper went into town in Denver, as I recall, and mailed a ransom note that he had prepared before uh, the attempted kidnapping. And uh, Mary receives it the following day uh, and has it in her hand by about 2.30 that afternoon. And uh, it, the FBI talked to the post office, and it was clear that this note was genuine because it had been mailed before any news broke out of the kidnapping. It had been mailed that, you know, the morning of the following day and the news didn't break out about the kidnapping until about five o'clock that afternoon. So they knew it was genuine. And in the note, 
it simply said that you know that uh, he had uh, Adolf Kors third. He wanted five hundred thousand dollars, which at that time was you know closer to five million today, um, and he wanted it in you know uh, one hundred dollar bills, and you know he described um, you know the you know the terms of the the kidnapping and and more or less said you'll you know you'll hear from me, I'll call back, and so. Uh, they knew they had a kidnapping right away. And, uh, you know, the most interesting, one of the most interesting things in the entire case to me, and because I'm certainly not an FBI agent, and uh, was that <clears throat> there were so many what I call piggyback kidnappers and extortionists and pranks and cranks that when the news broke out of the kidnapping, they would call and send letters and trying to pretend to be the real kidnappers or just, you know, being cruel. And Mary, at that time, uh, unlike subsequent kidnappings where, um, you know, they have a corporate person field the cause, the wife, Mary, in this case, had to answer every call regardless of the time of day or night. So if she was asleep, they'd wake her up and she would go in there and it would be, you know, not the real kidnapper. So she had to speak to everyone. It turned out to be over 50 people. Um, so if you can imagine, you know, you're going through the, the torture of your husband is missing, but now you're having to talk to all these people who are criminals or just nuts. Uh, and that is torture in itself. That had to have been terrifying to experience, not only dealing with your own emotions, I mean, as a wife, but being taunted and, and tortured. Oh, yeah. It just, uh, well, that, to me, that was one of the most torturous things of the entire case was the fact that she had to deal with those calls, waiting for the real kidnapper, who, by the way, never called. You know, he uh, got cold feet. And uh, that evening after the kidnapping and left Denver. So he never called, but she had to field all these phone calls uh, from, you know, fake kidnappers. But she she was ready to pay the ransom, of course, right? Yeah, they had the ransom ready. Um, and the, as I recall, they had a bank in Boston, and uh, they flew. They had a snowstorm. This the kidnapping was on Tuesday. They had a big snowstorm on Thursday. This is February in Colorado. And uh, it was very difficult getting around the streets and out in the country. Well, f the flight still was able to come in from Boston. It landed Friday morning, and it brought the $500,000 in cash that had been assembled at a Boston bank with the help of the FBI. Of course, they recorded serial numbers and, and that sort of thing uh, as part of the deal. And they delivered it to the house that set out on the ranch in Morrison and it's set in a footlocker there in the kitchen uh, for weeks uh, while this case went on. Wow. So how did investigators connect the dots here and tie this disappearance to the man who would eventually become the primary suspect in the case, Joseph Corbett? Yeah. Joe Corbett Jr. was the, um, um, you know, the, criminal, the kidnapper in this case. And he, uh, there was a lot of things that 
you know, he did wrong. But one of the first things that, you know, the sheriff's department and the FBI learned from interviewing neighbors uh, was that some stranger would come out quite often in a uh, yellow car and sit and watch, um, you know, uh, either the Coors home, which in fact, Adolf Coors III and his family had seen him as well. Um, or he would go to the, around the bridge area and, and check it out. He was just gathering, uh, you know, surveillance data on the comings and goings of Adolf Coors, the traffic patterns, all that sort of thing in order to um, make his move. And so one of the things that happened was people saw the car and a couple people got either a partial or full license plate number. And he actually used his real license plates. So immediately they ran the plate and they went to see him at his apartment there in Denver and he was gone. And uh, so that is how it started right there. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now, and can you guess the twist? Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. 
and we have returned. Can you talk a little bit about Joseph Corbett, his background and and his personal circumstances when he decided to do what he did? Uh, Joe Corbett, he is an interesting guy in his own right. Um, Very intelligent, Uh, was tested at 148 IQ, uh, had attended the University of Washington back in the 40s when there weren't a lot of, you know, regular average Joes uh, attending college at that time. And he had gone from University of Washington and applied to uh, University of California, Berkeley, to go into pre-med. He was going to be a pre-med student there. And um, so he was he was a full bright scholar. So he had a lot going for him. He was a bright guy and that sort of thing. But something happened to him. He was always just a little odd. But something happened to him. His mother died mysteriously at home from an accident. He was the only one present at the time. Um, no one knows if he killed her or not. But from that point on, he was never the same and he picked up, while well, he was in California, he picked up a hitchhiker and ended up robbing and murdering him. And so at age 21, he went to San Quentin. And so, you know, immediately his life changed from college student with, you know, a great future to now he's an inmate at San Quentin. Um, but because he was very intelligent and, um, you know, not a career criminal at that point, he uh, got transferred because he was such a good inmate and uh, worked in the infirmary, that sort of thing. He got transferred from uh, San Quentin to Terminal Island and then from Terminal Island to um, the prison in Chino, which was a minimum security prison. And that was really part of his plan. Once he got in the minimum security prison, he just walked away and escaped, and he went into L.A. and hung out there and hid for a while, for a few months, and then someone there told him, you know, Denver's a great place. So he he went to Denver, and this was in 1955, and as soon as he arrived in Denver, uh, it's amazing how easy it was back then. You know, he applied for a Colorado driver's license and everything, and um just became a resident of Denver and got a job at Benjamin Moore Paints, uh, you know, pretty good factory job. And um, but the entire time he was there, he was planning on either robbing a bank or, you know, doing a kidnapping or something. Uh, so he had not given up his criminal ways. And um, but very interesting guy uh, just from the fact that he was not your typical criminal. He was very bright, had, you know, dropped out of college and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, he, uh, a lot of unanswered questions about him. How did he escape from prison? He just walked away. Uh, it's a minimum security prison there in Chino, and they didn't have any fences. Uh, they just had, like, you know, which a lot of, minimum security prisons still do today, they'll have a perimeter set up with, you know, marked post and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, at that time, 
they didn't even have this this particular prison at that time didn't even have uh, guards watching. You know, it was kind of you were kind of on the uh, <laughs> honor system. <laughs> so, and, wow, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, but it you know in 1955 this prison it, it was pretty nice prison. I mean, they had because they were at that time thinking rehabilitation and. Uh, they, you know, they had a swimming pool, tennis courts, handball courts. They had, a, you know, a baseball team. They had all these things. So a lot of the prisoners were just happy to be there uh, compared to other places. And so one night he uh, was working in the laundry and he stuffed, you know, sort of like we see on television. He stuffed some clothes into the laundry basket and placed it there. So that night he snuck into the laundry, changed clothes, you know, went out a window and then just walked about seven miles to a town called Ontario, not Ontario, Canada, but Ontario, California, and caught a bus to LA. And it was just that simple. Did he continue to use his real name? No, once he got to, um, Denver, he started using an alias. He called his name his, himself Walter Osborne, which the FBI learned later was the first and middle name of his stepbrother. Uh, his, he had a stepbrother named Walter Osborne Corbett, and he had used his uh, stepbrother's first and middle name, and he used that name in Denver the thing that I found interesting, though, was once he went on the run and they were looking for him and they knew his alias, he never changed it. He kept the same alias almost up until the time he was captured. So uh, when he was working in Toronto, for example, he was using the name Walter Osborne. And then when he went to uh, Winnipeg, he was using the name Walter Osborne. He didn't change his appearance. He didn't grow his hair, change the color take his glasses off, get contact, nothing. He just kept his same appearance and his same, uh, you know, name. It's, it's incredible. So how did the FBI and the Sheriff's Department proceed? Are they working together or on different paths in finding Corbett? No, really, the FBI is the only investigating team at this point. There are no police involved or state patrol at this point. The only other law enforcement team is the sheriff's department and they are obsolete pretty quickly because they're really only looking for Adolf Coors, you know, to see if he is lost or being held in a cave or a cabin or a vacation home. That's what, so they're still conducting searches for the person. Whereas the FBI is investigating the crime and try, trying to track down, you know, the perpetrator. And in this case, when they went to his apartment, he had done a, an amazing job of cleaning the apartment. There were no fingerprints whatsoever except one fingerprint on a bucket that he had left outside near a trash bin. And so the FBI retrieved the bucket, got a, got a print off of it, and within – Two weeks, they had a match, and that's when they learned that he wasn't Walter Osborne. He was Joe Corbett, the escaped convict from California. So things remain quiet through the summer of 1960. 
and, and they still can't find Corbett, right? And, and they learn his identity fairly early on. Yeah, they didn't know his identity until, um, for sure, into you know about a month after the kidnapping attempt, and he had driven. But they did pick up his trail very really quickly because he made a blunder. He had driven from Denver to Atlantic City, and in Atlantic City, for some reason, he decided to torch his car. And he thought it would, you know, his car, I'm sure, had uh, some evidence, some bloods, whatever, in the car. And so he torched it at a garbage dump right outside of Atlantic City. Well, the fire department arrived before it completely burned, and they put out the fire, and they were able to take Back then, they called it a serial number off the engine. Now it's a vehicle identification number. They take the serial number, they run the check, and they trace it back to Denver and to Walter Osborne, who is Joe Corbett. So right away, they learn that Walter Osborne, their you know their suspect, has gone from Denver to Atlantic City. So now they have all the FBI on the East Coast checking his whereabouts and. And so that is, um, uh, you know, what's happening. But then he left pretty quickly and went to Toronto. Now, in Toronto, uh, he lays low for several months, and the FBI doesn't, uh, you know, can't find him. They can't. He's, like, disappeared. So this is what was happening, as you say, throughout the summer and into the early fall uh, of 1960. And then September 11th rolls around, and Adolf Kors' body is, is finally discovered, right? Yeah, in um, September, um, you know, the, it's amazing because the family had not heard anything from Adolf Kors III. They hadn't heard anything from the kidnapper. There's just silence. Um, so from February until September, the family didn't know they assumed he was dead, but they didn't know, and they didn't know where he could be, what happened to him, or to his kidnapper. And then, as things often are, even in the mountains of Colorado, uh, a young man, I think he was 25 or so, a pizza delivery guy, went uh, up on uh, Pikes Peak and found a garbage dump there and was practicing his shooting target practice and um, while he was walking around the dump he found a pair of pants that looked pretty nice and he kicked them off the path and when he kicked them they jingled and so he picked them up you know found some change um, and found a, a pocket knife and then he went on down the path and then he found some shoes that looked pretty nice and so um as he was walking along, he looked at the pocket knife, and it had an inscription of initials. It was uh, A.C. the third was written on it. So he immediately knew, you know, being from the area, that uh, this was Adolf Kors uh, III's pocket knife and his clothing. So he he ran, he jumped in his truck, took off, went down the street, uh, the road and met a friend who was a local police officer. He called the FBI, and within two hours, there were several FBI agents 
out there with this young man uh, searching, and then they found more clothing and more and some bones, and uh, it got dark that first day, and they were back the next morning and the next day as well, and they took the bones to um, the coroner who assembled a skeleton, and they took the teeth, uh, the jaw bones to a dentist, and uh, that's when they identified uh, Mr. Coors' remains, and that was yeah uh, from se- around September 11 to September 15th during that week that uh, the family finally got its answers. So it went from you know a kidnapping case to a murder case, and uh, uh, so now Joe Corbett III was being sought for the murder of Adolf Coors III. Was the family expecting the worst at this point? With all the, the blood at the first crime scene, or were they hoping against hope for a miracle? You know, it's funny because the blood, initially, the Adcor's brothers, Bill and Joe, um, just thought that it looked like someone had been hit in the head, you know, like knocked out. Um, but from my review of the FBI report, the FBI that first day, uh, thought that he probably was dead. Uh, there was so much blood. Uh, there was, you know, the area, the blood spot was probably, as I recall, 13 inches by 21 inches, and it was saturated into the soil. And there was also blood on the railing, on the vehicle, on the rocks along the creek bank, you know, over 20 feet away. Uh, so there was a lot of blood spray. It was a windy day. So, you know, initially they they thought he was probably dead. That's, that was what the FBI operated under. The family, however, held out hope, and particularly Mary, uh, who the wife of Ad Corps III, she held out hope because they really didn't know. You know, they didn't know. They couldn't type the blood either, so they didn't even know whose blood it was. Uh, but they assumed it was Ad Corps III. So, but as, you know, February became March, became April, June, summer, and then fall comes, you know, by that time, everyone, you know, assumed he was dead, even Mary. And they were just, they had given up hope of ever finding the body at that point. Uh, so by September of 1960, everybody was just going on about their daily lives, thinking they'd never know the answer. Uh, the Coors Brewing Company never missed a beat. It kept working. Uh, Mary, she moved away from the ranch in Morrison and moved back to Denver, uh, and bought uh, a nice home in the Cherry Hills area. And um, so, yes, uh, that by that time, they thought he was dead and gone. And, you know, they were fortunate in you know, the respect that they did find his remains. So what was the, the distance between where the, the blood was found on that first day and, and, and where the body was discovered? It was about 30 miles. So what did they suspect? What was the FBI's assumption about what had happened between Corbett and Coors? Did, did they think he'd been killed pretty quickly? Yeah, the, luckily, the right shoulder blade had two bullet wounds uh, in the bone. Um, so they, and it, the size of the bullet wounds mashed up about a nine millimeter 
weapon. So they knew he had been shot. And that's fairly lucky because, you know, it could have entered in soft tissue without hitting bone and they would have never known. But um, the coroner was able to determine that he'd been shot in the back twice. And when they found the clothing, it had powder burns. So they knew he'd been shot in the back twice and close, you know, within two inches. So the gun was either pressed against him or just barely away from his body. And based on the location of the wound, it would have penetrated the lung and, you know, been uh, created the severe bleeding. And based on the, you know, the blood loss, uh, the coroner was able to determine that he probably died within five minutes. And um, so they were able to tell a lot. Um, and then they pieced together based on the fact that they found two hats in the creek. Plus, they found later found. Um, Adcor's glasses, eyeglasses in the creek bed uh, that one lens had been broken. They put together that there was a struggle. There was like scratches on the railing of the bridge and some other, some earth on the bridge that had been disturbed. So they could tell there had been a struggle. And then they put together the best scenario based on the, the direction of the blood spray that it appeared that Adcors was trying to make it back to his vehicle when he was shot in the back. And from there, um, they would learn, you know, based on the location of the body at the dump, that, you know, Joe Corbett had loaded up Adcors either already deceased or dying and took him to uh, Pike's Peak, this dump in Pike's Peak, and, and just carried him into the woods there and dropped him, uh, which, you know, as I mentioned in the book, uh, a lot of the bones had, you know, gnaw marks where they'd been, uh, teeth marks where they'd been gnawed on by animals. So the body was, you know, devoured, as you would think it would be devoured uh, by wild animals in the woods. And that was another gruesome aspect of this. In fact, the skull had been carried almost a thousand feet away as I recall, a thousand feet um, away from the other bones. So an animal had picked up the head and carried it uh, to another location. So that was, you know, if poor Mary Coors had not already had enough torture, just the thought of her husband lying there and being torn apart by animals and, you know, her, his head carried for, you know, several hundreds of feet away, it had have been very disturbing. I mean, on, on some level, the, the fact that he'd been shot and died pretty quickly, there must have been some level of comfort amongst the terrible grief and knowing that he hadn't died a drawn-out, agonizing death. That's true. A lot, of, a lot of victims, you know, have to, you know, they're either tortured or they undergo maltreatment for some period of time or have some injury and it's a slow death, but you're exactly correct. You know, he died within five minutes, according to the coroner. Um, and, you know, the coroner said he was probably in shock immediately and didn't really know anything at that point. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sure that the family took some comfort in that. And you, you said he was shot in the back, right? So he probably didn't even see it coming. No, he yeah, he was shot in the back uh, near the you know the top shoulder, right shoulder, uh, two shots. So he didn't see what was coming. Um, 
And, you know, he, you know, as I mentioned in the book, if he had simply gotten in the car and donned the shackles and gone with Joe Corbett, he may have been okay. Uh, because based on my research, Joe Corbett did not plan on killing him. He just wanted the money. Um, but at the same time, Joe Corbett had killed someone before, and he was certainly a dangerous man. And, you know, most of us, if someone tells us to get in the car and put on, you know, leg irons and handcuffs, we might do as uh, Ad Coors did and fight back. And But the struggle is what led to his death. How did you find out that he he fought back? Was that something that Corbett later admitted? No, he never said anything. Uh, it was just based on evidence at the scene uh, that there had to have been a struggle based on, um, you know, scuffing on the uh, wooden railing, the hats being in the creek, the eyeglasses falling from the bridge into the creek. It was as though someone, you know, had hit the rail and their hats went off the bridge and with their glasses and then the location of the, like the earth had been moved about and gravel as though, you know, people's uh, were wrestling, that sort of thing. And then, as I said, you know, the blood spray. But there was no eyewitness. And and Joe Corbett never told exactly what happened. But based on the evidence, the FBI was able to piece together what they, you know, m- what most likely happened. But no one ever knew you know, for sure how it went down. He was known as Ad, short for Adolf, right? Yeah, it, uh, you know, particularly after World War II, not too many people wanted to be called Adolf. Um, so he went by Ad for short because it was a, ger- you know, a family of German, you know, heritage. And, you know, they're Adolfs. They, <laughs> he certainly <laughs> wanted to be Ad. Which, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't know too many Ads. I, I don't think I've ever met an Ad. Um, but, yeah, he, he went by Ad Course the third. Back after a few brief messages. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for The Strange, The Bizarre, 
the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. As you mentioned earlier, Ad was pretty athletic, right? He was an outdoorsman. So for Corbett to try and, and take him and, and subdue him alone. Yeah, very athletic um, for his age. Yeah, as I mentioned in the book, they're both about the same size. They're around, you know, over six feet, six, six feet, six one, about the same weight. Uh, 170, 185 range. And um, Corbett was 32. Ad Coors was 44, but Ad Coors was an athletic 44. He was a avid snow skier. In fact, he is responsible for a lot of these, uh, for Aspen and, and Vale, a lot of these snow um, resorts that we have today. He was in, uh, you know, in the late 1940s, working on um, developing those areas. He was a big snow skier. Um, every morning he would do calisthenics and push-ups and sit-ups before he went to work. So he was in good shape. And, uh, you know, being the same size as the gentleman that's trying to put you in a car, I'm sure he thought, you know, I can I could deal with this. Um, and, uh, you know, it just didn't work out. This was was obviously a sensational case. Coors was rich and well-known, and and this blows up in the press pretty quickly, right? Oh, yeah. They were out there the same day. They were out by 5 o'clock that afternoon. uh, The press was out there, uh, newspaper men, uh, TV cameras, uh, everything. And it was not only a national story, it became an international story because most – uh, people were aware of Coors, even though at that time Coors beer was only distributed in a 12-state area in the western part of the United States. It, uh, the Coors family was well known throughout the, you know, not only the country but the world. And uh, so, the news newsmen uh, at that time they were men um, were all over the story every day, and, and in fact. Uh, the airport, Stapleton Airport at that time in Denver, uh, people were flying in from all over the country. Life magazine was coming out. Uh, all these news, New York uh, news people were coming out. It was just, you know, uh, Golden, Colorado and Denver were crowded with uh, news people at that time. And uh, 
the FBI, as they always do, they don't comment on an ongoing investigation, and they had told the Coors family not to comment. But, of course, the local sheriff, as many local sheriffs are, they are elected uh, officials. So all the press he could get, he was happy to get. And so he was always holding uh, court over at the sheriff's department with the news people and uh, news cameras. How was Corbett finally apprehended? How did they catch him? Well, you know, it's so funny how people were apprehended. It's a lot of times you can't make this up. But uh, when I was a kid, I don't, you know, I don't even know if the magazine is still out there. Um, but Reader's Digest was a big publication at the time. I remember when I was a kid, my mom, you know, subscribed to Reader's Digest and, it was a mixture of news articles and, you know, fiction stories and nonfiction stories. It was just a, you know, and it had, I think it had a puzzle, a crossword puzzle, had all this stuff in a little magazine. And, uh, but a lot of, uh, people subscribed at that time to Reuse Digest. Well, so did, uh, Canada. Canada was a big, uh, in fact, they had a distribution center for Reuse Digest in Canada. Well, when, um, this case started going cold in August. Um, Reader's Digest published a story about the crime, and they they did a good job of describing what had happened. But they, more importantly, they had put a photo of Joe Corbett on the first page of the story, and as I recall, it said, "Have you seen this man?" and they use his name Joe Corbett Jr., but they also use his alias Walter Osborne. Well, in Toronto, he was working, you know, had a job and living in an apartment. Well, first thing, people, <laughs> they open up their Reader's Digest and there he is. So they start calling, uh, you know, the Royal Canadian Police and say, hey, I've seen this guy. I like work with him or he's in my apartment. Well, Joe Corbett had seen it as well, so he took off uh, to Winnipeg before the authorities arrived, and they found that he had been living there, but then they lost his trail. But once he got to Winnipeg, he made a mistake, as he prone to do. I think at this point he may have been giving up. Uh, he rented a, um, a bright red, uh, as it was fire engine red, um, convertible, Pontiac convertible, I believe, and it was a lot, a lot of chrome as they were back in, in that time period, 1960. And he used his, his alias again, and he wrote a check for the payment on his Toronto bank account. So they were able to trace him back to Toronto because the check bounced. And so they found out, okay, well, now he's gone from Toronto to Winnipeg. So he was laying an easy trail for them. So he left Winnipeg and went to Vancouver. He parked and he found another apartment complex and he parked this bright red convertible with all this chrome front and back and sides in front of the um, apartment for a couple of days. And then he moved it. He did, he uh, deserted the car in a, in a, parking garage somewhere but just in those couple days it was parked out front a police officer noticed it because he thought wow this is that's a sharp car and he so when the 
FBI came to Vancouver, they're like, we think he may be headed this way. Last we know, he's driving a 1960 Pontiac convertible, bright red, blah, blah, blah. Well, the the Canadian police officers like, you know, I think I've seen that car. <laughs> so sure enough, um, they went to the apartment complex, and that's where they found um, Joe Corbett. He was not expecting them at all. Uh, they went to the door, and they knocked on the door, and he actually opened the door uh, without a gun in his hand. And as I say in the book, you know, as was said in the FBI report, they were amazed. He looked exactly like the article in the Reader's Digest, and he looked exactly like the last mugshot they had of him. He hadn't changed his appearance at all. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he was either incredibly cocky or incredibly stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, he was, you know, an IQ of 148. He's certainly intelligent, but sometimes, uh, you know, uh, you can be stupid uh, with a high IQ. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, he when he shot, he did not plan to shoot at Corvus III. And when he did, he did not plan for that eventuality. So uh, he had a nice plan beforehand. But once he shot him, he just became a guy on the run. And that's clearly what happened. He goes from Denver to Atlantic City to Toronto to Winnipeg to Vancouver when he was in Vancouver, he was looking for a boat, a ship to board, and he his plan had been to take it to Australia. Uh, but luckily for the FBI, they caught up with him before he boarded, because if he had boarded, they may not have ever caught up with him. And doesn't he say when confronted by agents at his door, I'm your man? <laughs> yeah, this is the other. I mean, it, it, the list goes on. You know, he's. They, they say Joe Corbett, and they're pretty rough with him. They, you know, cuff him. And so as they're saying, Joe Corbett, are you Joe Corbett? And he says, I'm your man, <laughs> and, which was used in his trial uh, as more or less a confession, an attempt at a confession, which was not technically was not a confession because he could have been executed with a confession at the, in Colorado. But he did not confess. But. Believe me, the prosecutor kept using that, I'm your man, I'm your man, many times in his, uh, in, during the trial. Let me ask you about the trial. They extradite him to America, and he's tried in Colorado, correct? That's right. Um, it's a state case uh, because he was not carried across state lines. Adcourse wasn't carried across state lines. It happened in Jefferson County, Colorado, so it became a state case. In fact, the FBI really lost its jurisdiction but remained on the case after he was captured um, to assist with, you know, the local DA. And, you know, I have a funny story in there in the book um, because it's so it's cliche, it's so stereotypical of the combativeness and the um, uh, competition between federal lawmen and the locals. In this case, the you say he was extradited. Well, the local sheriff and the local DA, who was involved in a pretty close election at that time, they flew up uh, to Seattle to bring Joe Corbett back to Denver. 
and because he was being extradited. Well, the FBI <laughs> told him, okay, we'll take care of this. Just come back in the morning and you can pick him up. Well, during the night, the FBI flew him back to Denver to get, <laughs> to get the publicity, you know, because once he stepped off the plane, flashbulbs were popping and, you know, two FBI agents were seen, which really perturbed the local sheriff and he was crying foul in the, in the media. But, uh, back to your question about the trial, he was brought in. He was put in the Jefferson County Jail and the sheriff, you know, tried to get a confession out of him. Uh, Joe Corbett had some good legal counsel. They put a stop to that. And they went to trial, lasted um, less than two weeks, and the the defense didn't put put on any evidence. They didn't really have anything. They were just hoping for uh, procedural out. They did a lot of procedural uh, motions that didn't work. And then when it came up before the jury, it was a lot closer than people would think because the prosecution didn't have any direct evidence. They didn't have a typewriter. They didn't have a gun. They didn't have anything. They didn't have eyewitness. They didn't have any direct evidence to connect Joe Corbett to Adcor's murder. But they had lots of substantial evidence, like the car being spotted, the license plate, paper uh, similar to the paper on the ransom note. And, and the list just went on, you know, uh, of circumstantial evidence. So when it went before the jury, they took a took a vote in the jury, and it was almost evenly split at that time on the first ballot. So uh, it was not a slam dunk for the prosecution. And as, you know, the first day of deliberation turned to the second and third, finally they had a unanimous verdict of guilty of first-degree murder which it you know surprised me uh, how you could have a split jury going in and by the third day you've got a unanimous verdict so a lot of people were joining the not were joining the guilty uh jurors and you know I don't know what was happening there uh maybe they were just going over the evidence but I would also think that the fact that this was a coors there was a lot of pressure you know if not from the outside within that jury room to feel like, you know, we, if we let this guy go, uh, I'm not sure I can go to work the next day, you know, sort of thing. My family and I may have to leave the community. Um, so there was a unanimous verdict. He was, and they got a life sentence, um, to go to state prison there, a really tough state prison in Cannon city. And, uh, but, at that time, this was 1961 at this point, uh, after serving 17 years, which would have put him at 1978, the 70s in Colorado prison system, they were really big on rehabilitation um, and not retribution. Uh, they just didn't want to throw people in jail. So Joe Corbett came up for his first parole after serving just 17 years. And um, he didn't get it. He came up again the next year, and he got it. I uh, got a parole. But the Coors family and the governor uh, cried foul, so they revoked his parole. And But then the next year, he got it again, uh, so they let him go. So he served about 18 years at that point, and 
there's another funny story that he did. He, uh, as part of his parole, he had to go to California to live with a cousin. Well, he flies to California, San Francisco. He hops another plane, flies right back. And I remember uh, reading that a reporter who had covered the case closely was walking down the sidewalk, and he says, I'm just walking along thinking I'll never see Joe Corbett again, and heck if he doesn't walk by by me in Denver. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, he was only there. I, you know, I, I don't know what he was thinking, but he flew in to close a bank account in Denver and take the money and fly back. He was only in Denver like four hours. Well, word got out quickly because this reporter had seen him that Joe Corbett's back in town and uh, he just got out on parole. He must be seeking blood, you know, must be wanting to kill, you know, the prosecutor in another course and it just blows up, you know. So the prosecutor got security. The Coors family got more security. Everybody was, you know, on pins and needles. And then they find him. He's back in San Francisco. So they arrest him for a parole violation, and he spends another year in prison. And uh, so he gets out again um, in 1980, as I recall. And uh, he's he's blueing, wearing a light, a baby blue, like, you know, leisure suit. <laughs> this was the disco era. <laughs> and, and so uh, he's out and he stays in Denver. And that's where he lives the rest of his life. He works for the Salvation Army driving a truck. Uh, never uh, went back to school and finished his degree. Never got a better job um, and lived in, you know, uh, an apartment there in Denver. Uh, not far from where he committed the crime. And uh, in, when he was 81, I believe it was, uh, he contracted terminal cancer. And so he shot himself uh, and ended that. But I was told after I wrote the book that uh, during those years, after he'd gotten out of prison and was living there in Denver, that the Coors family had him watched, um, that they still – were nervous about this guy being in Denver. And uh, I, I, I can kind of understand that. So they had not only the local police keeping an eye on him, I think they had some private investigators keeping an eye on him occasionally as well. And uh, But as far as I know, Joe Corbett never committed another crime, and uh, he never confessed. He never talked about the crime. He just uh, lived out his life and, and uh, died. Interesting. Were there ever any suspects besides Corbett? Did the defense ever bring up anyone else in the trial? Not really. They, well, there was, you know, some people had seen um, Joe Corbett with someone else in the car. So they thought that Joe Corbett may have had an accomplice, but they could never find anyone um, that matched that. They found couple co-workers that uh, they pressed pretty hard. One in particular I mentioned in the book, and he was actually given a polygraph test and passed. So, And they ended up using him as a prosecution witness. Um, there was no one else. The defense occasionally would say, you know, there was this strange fingerprint found in Adcor's vehicle that the FBI was never able to match up. And you know, a lot of people were saying that this hat 
that they found at the scene, you know, is different than the one that Joe Corbett wore. But, you know, it was very flimsy. You know, they were just grabbing for the moon at that point. But to answer your question is no, there's never, ever a serious uh, suspect other than Joe Corbett. And, uh, you know, people have asked me, do I think he's guilty based on everything I've seen? And the answer is yes. Uh, no, no question in my mind he was guilty. Um, even though there's no direct evidence, there wasn't a bullet or a gun or a typewriter or any of that. There's a mountain of circumstantial evidence. And so if he didn't do it, he had the worst luck of anybody on the planet because <laughs> I, there were so many things that pointed to his guilt. Um, and that's why he was found guilty by the jury. And this was another victory for J. Edgar Hoover to crow about, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it was, um, you know, but unfortunately, you know, the, the, they certainly crowed about it. And, you know, as I point out in the book, um, in 1959, 1960, at this point, um, there was a movie out called The FBI Story based on the book uh, starring Jimmy Stewart as the, you know, quintessential FBI G-man. And um, it was really kind of a PR movie for the FBI. So this was a big time for the FBI, you know, 19, late 50s, early 60s. That was, you know, things changed by the end of the decade. But at that time, you know, you know, the FBI was right in there with, you know, baseball and apple pie. And so it was a big coup for the FBI. But one thing that, you know, stuck in their crawl a little bit was that uh, they had chased this guy all over the country and into Canada. And then it ended up being a Royal Canadian police officer who was the one who discovered where he was. So that bothered them a little bit, but, Overall, they were pretty happy. And this really is J. Edgar Hoover at the peak of his power. He he hadn't even started tussling with the Kennedys yet. No, the Kennedys hadn't shown up. I mean, he was, you know, he was the boss. You know, he was like the mafia boss of, you know, FBI. Uh, so to have him personally on the case, you know, putting pressure on his agents in Denver, that sort of thing, that was a big deal. And communicating directly with, you know, um, Adcor's father, that was a big deal. So you're exactly right. This was, you know, nearing the pinnacle of his power. Uh, he'd always been a very powerful man, but this was just before, this was 1960. This was just before, you know, wrestling with the Kennedys and then, you know, Nixon more or less, you know, asking for his resignation. And, um, so, you know, it was it was a big deal. Was there any jaw drop moment for you when you were researching your book? Some facts that you found that had never been published or talked about before that you were especially eager to get out there? Well, there were, you know, it's so funny. There was a lot of facts I wanted to get out there because his story, no one had ever written about it before. And it had been lost to time. In fact, all the material I found, it took me a while to find it. Like the trial transcript had been uh, uh, burned by the court and destroyed, and no one had a trial transcript. It took me three years to find one in the basement of, of a law school. And it's funny, after I wrote the book, a, a gentleman 
uh, emailed me. His father had been the court reporter, and his, upon his death, his mother had donated the transcript, which apparently is the only one in existence, uh, to this law library, and it had just been down in the basement, you know, gathering dust. So that was a big deal for me to find that. And then the FBI uh, investigation report that was over 700 pages ended up with almost uh, 2,000 pages of FBI material. And, um, you know, it took me another – it took three years as well to get that uh, because the FBI moved slowly and then the National Archives wanted time to redact names. And then when I got it, nothing was redacted. But I still had to wait three years. Uh, so overall, you know, I would say, you know, I, I'm not a very excitable guy. So I wasn't like, wow, this is amazing. Um, I was everything seemed interesting to me. I was so into this book because uh, there were so many things. The time period, you know, 1960, Colorado was still, you know, kind of a cross between Cowboys and, you know, uh, a metropolitan area and, and then the Coors family and the FBI being, as you say, at the peak of its power. And then the sheriff being a war hero and, you know, seeking publicity. And there were just so many things uh, going on uh, that made this book for me uh, rich to work on besides the Coors family. And, you know, one thing I wanted to and I, I think I did was I wanted to show the terrible impact it had on Mary Coors, the wife, as well as the entire family. But she never recovered. You know, as the book says, uh, she became an alcoholic and died fairly young. And she never recovered from the incident. And the children were knocked off the track of uh, they would have been the next in line uh, for uh, running the Coors Brewing Company, they were knocked out of the lineage and Joe Coors' sons took over. Uh, so, you know, it had a big impact um, on a lot of a lot of people. And for me, uh, you know, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the thing that I just felt so terrible in all of this was just the fact that Mary Coors had to answer all those phone calls Um yeah, I would have thought they would have come up with a better system uh, for that. But uh, I read where she would be awakened at 2 a.m. to go answer a phone call. And it could be a crank call or, you know, some extortionist. And I would, I just thought that was just terrible. Well, well, my listeners are probably aware, those who have listened through all of my episodes, that I obsess a little bit about 1930s depression era gangsters mm-hmm. and it's interesting that the barker carpus gang in 1933 right at the right at the beginning of hoover's career as as head of the fbi they kidnapped william ham jr heir to the ham's brewery <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ham was ultimately safely returned although in your story of course the outcome was far worse and almost 30 years later well it's funny you mentioned that because i have a reference in my book to that same era because uh, Ed Coors III, his father, there had been a plot to kidnap his father in 1933. And in fact, his father was good friends with the, at that point, the richest family in Colorado and the richest family's son had been kidnapped um, a few days earlier. And when they 
captured uh, the kidnappers, uh, they found that Adolf Kaur Jr. was next on the list. And so he pretended to go along with another group that had planned to kill him and, I mean, to kidnap him. And uh, they, the FBI caught those guys as well. So it's funny. So, and I mentioned in the book that in later years, uh, he was always telling his kids, you know, not to flaunt their wealth and that sort of thing because you can be kidnapped like, you know, back in the old days uh, of the Depression and, you know, the public enemy number one era. Uh, so it, that was an interesting parallel, and it, and it goes to what you were talking about as well. There was a lot of kidnapping going on <clears throat> in that time. That was a big business. Of course, today um, I find it it has to be near impossible to kidnap someone in the U.S. successfully to, and get a ransom. It happens in many other countries uh, and U.S., you know, employees, executives of U.S. companies are often kidnapped in other countries, but not here, uh, not with the FBI and not with the technology we have today. I, I just can't imagine. It's easy to grab someone. I say this all the time. The easy part is grabbing someone. You can grab anybody at some point if you plan it well enough. The difficult part is, cha- you know, trading that person for money. <laughs> that's where it gets more difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's that's when things get botched a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah, and with all the technology we have, and and you know, even satellite imagery, uh, it's going to be hard. You can't just uh, meet the guy in a dark park. And can't get a bag of money anymore, you know. Uh, that's not going to work. True, true. No. <laughs> For people interested in learning more about your work and this book, where can they go? Well, you can go to my website, uh, com, or you can go to uh, McMillan's website and uh, – Check me out there as well. Awesome. So again, your book is called The Death of an Heir, Adolf Coors III, and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. Thank you so much. It's been great. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it very much. I've enjoyed it as well. I, uh, As I said to you earlier, I'm working on another book right now, and uh, I, I may be a little rusty on Coors, even though I just came out in September, but uh, it's it's uh, to me it's a very interesting story in many respects, and it has that old Western flavor uh, to it as well. So I think your listeners will enjoy it, and uh, and uh, I hope they uh, give it a chance. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.
have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.